Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Rambling Brews Podcast. This is episode number 20. I am your host, I go by the name Tim, and I've noticed my listener numbers are growing over the last few episodes, so I want to take this time to say welcome. I appreciate the hell out of all of the listeners, both new and those that have been rocking with me since episode one. And for anyone out there currently listening, if you know anyone that can play goal, I think the Pittsburgh Penguins are currently in the market for a netminder because what a gong show that was in the first round of the playoffs against the New York Islanders from Tristan Jari. My God. We're going to take a deep dive into that series and what the future in Pittsburgh may look like for the Penguins. But all in all, it's been a great first round so far from a fan and viewer perspective. I mean, there's been multiple overtime games, game sevens, controversies, suspensions, fights, scrums after the whistle. I mean, the playoffs have been as advertised, and we're going to get into it all. But first, as always, another day, another pod, another cold Coors Light. All right, let's drop the puck and get right to it. The Pittsburgh Penguins were ousted by the New York Islanders in six games in the opening round series, much to the chagrin of myself and Pittsburgh Penguin fans around the world and a lot of experts that picked against the New York Islanders. I wouldn't say it's much of a surprise because the New York Islanders, they do have a great hockey club. They've had some success in recent years um, against the Penguins for sure. A couple years ago, as I talked about a couple episodes ago in the playoff preview, uh, but this year, the Pittsburgh Penguins pretty much uh, played very well against the Islanders in the regular season. They won six of eight. Heading into the playoffs, the Penguins were on a nice high, and the Islanders were really puttering. And I think they lost seven or eight of their last 10 games. So, But like I mentioned, you know, the playoffs are a whole different animal. So you just got to get into the dance, and anything can happen. It's a blank slate, and that's pretty much what happened here. Um, last week when I had Ray on, we talked about we recorded right after the Penguins had dropped Game 4 to make it a 2-2 series. They lost Game 4 up on Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum. And, man, that crowd was rocking. It was awesome to see fans back in the arena, You know, even if it was opposing fans. Nassau Coliseum, I think it only holds 14,000 total, and they're getting a new arena over at Belmont Park up there on Long Island, which would still be awesome and get the hell out of Brooklyn. But that barn is just incredible. It's definitely one of the... Um, Best places to to see a game, I'm sure. Just the environment on TV. I can only imagine what it's like in the actual arena. But for an away team, it's very difficult to win there. The Penguins have had not a lot of success, uh, especially in the Crosby era and in the playoffs. I think they've lost all but one series to the New York Islanders. And I believe that was 2013. The Penguins beat the Islanders um, in New York. They won game six, but I digress from that. But again, it's a very difficult place to play. And Game five, jumping right into game five. So I said, you know, the Penguins had dropped game four, and I was actually pretty confident heading into game five. The Penguins were coming back home, back to PPG Paints Arena, where they had a lot of success this year. I know they dropped game one um, in the series, and you don't want to lose on home ice. But the Penguins did their job. They went on the road. They stole game three, and they got it back. They got home ice advantage back, so it became a best-of-three series, like I said last week. So three games to go. All you got to do is win two of them, and two of them potentially were on home ice if you get to game seven. But we got to jump to game five. So much like the whole series for me, the Penguins really were the dominant team. Uh, the New York Islanders kind of dominate in different ways. They're A lot of people, I think, lazy uh, analysis of the Islanders is that they sit back and they really don't 
um, you know, try to score on offense and stuff like that. They really try to wait for you to make a mistake, and I don't think that's correct. They're one of the best forechecking teams I've ever seen in my life. They forecheck very hard, make it very difficult on the opposing team, in this case the Penguins, to get the puck from their defensemen and uh, rim it up around the boards and exit the zone um, with ease, and it's very difficult. They create a lot of turnovers, and they a lot of times end up in the back of your net, like a lot of pucks did uh, for the Islanders this series, as I mentioned with Tristan Jari, which we'll get to in a minute. But it was a it was a hell of a uh, game five. Like the Penguins really came out firing. They've been really maybe outside of game four. I think they lost game four four to one and really couldn't get anything going. And uh, they kind of got swallowed up by the environment up in um, Nassau Coliseum. And the Islanders were buzzing, just playing a great game. And but outside of that, like I said, I think the Penguins pretty much controlled eighty percent of the series. They were the better team in eighty percent of the series, in my opinion. And you can say what you want, but if you're somebody that didn't watch or uh, hasn't seen the score, I should say, you just look at the stat sheet and you watch the games, and you don't know what the score is, you would be like, yeah, the Penguins probably won this series in five games. And they probably should have won the series in five games if they would have got decent goaltending. Because in game five in particular, now I know shots on goal don't mean everything, but the Penguins were really, really possessing the puck. They were forechecking hard. They were creating turnovers, drawing penalties, really getting to their game and to their identity. And it was a hell of a performance from the Penguins. And they had 50 shots on goal. Now I know the game went to double overtime, but to put that in perspective, the New York Islanders had 28. So the game's tied. Obviously, it's double overtime. It's tied. I believe it was 2-2. And the Penguins have the puck in the offensive zone. And I don't know if it was Jake Gensel or Jason Zucker or whoever it was, but they tried to make like a billiards pass from behind the net off the uh, half wall up to Malkin at the point to avoid the Islanders defenseman's stick. And he made the pass, but it came off the boards at a little bit of a different angle. Uh, Sometimes that can happen. All buildings have different bounces off of boards and stuff like that. So Malkin was a little bit out of position. He was more close to the the boards themselves, thinking it was going to come up off the boards at a different angle. And it kind of bounced out to the middle of the ice. And it was right at the beginning of the second overtime, so the ice is clean. So there's not much snow on it, so the puck will glide much further maybe than it would later in the period. So it goes all the way down, and Tristan Jari comes out, the goalie for the Penguins. He comes out to stop the puck right about the the left circle there in his own zone, the left faceoff circle. Now, I know a lot of people will say this, and I tend to agree, especially in the postseason and especially in overtime, that the net miner should probably just stay in the crease. But in this case, the puck was coming basically so slow, and the Islanders went to make a line change. There was really no harm in Jari going out to get the puck. Now, I want to pause it right there. So whenever Jari has the puck on his stick, mind you, he's at the left circle in his own zone, maybe about 10 feet from his own net. So Chris Letang is to his left. If you're looking, if you're behind Jari or you're looking from Jari's uh, point of view, you've got Letang at the left on the wall, wide open. You look to your right, you've got Evgeny Malkin at the wall, wide open. Both passes are very easy for an NHL goaltender. Hell, they're easy for a beer league goaltender. What does he do? He decides... Instead of making the simple play, I'm going to try to see if, I think it was Kasperi Kapanen was up in the middle in the neutral zone. He's going to try to pull a Tommy Barrasso. And if you haven't seen this highlight, i got to tweet it out if I can because it's unbelievable what Barrasso did to, to Lemieux back against the Rangers. I think it was in 1994. But he tries to pull a Tommy Barrasso and sauce pass this puck, lift it up off the ice, and land it right on Kasperi Kapanen's stick at the red line. Mind you, this is double overtime. Make the simple play. If you don't have an easy pass or you're not confident in your ability to make an easy pass and you want to come out and stop it, that's fine. You're helping your team out. But rim it off the glass or put it behind the net. Don't throw it up the middle of the ice. That's peewee hockey shit, especially in overtime. Anytime, really. 
but it's a high-risk play that doesn't need to be made because there's little reward. The Islanders were in a change, and they had defensemen back. So it's not like he's springing a breakaway or anything. I don't know what happened. He just had a mind fart or something, but it was a horrible time for a mind fart and one of the biggest gaffes in Pittsburgh sports history, in my opinion. And uh, I'm only 30, so I wasn't alive for a lot of the ones that I've heard people talking about. But in recent history, this is bad. So like I said, he tries to ship it up the middle of the ice to Kapanen, I believe it was, and doesn't really get it off the ice as well as he would like to. It goes right to Josh Bailey, who's a freaking penguin killer. I mean, this guy scores every time they play against the Penguins. And they play that stupid-ass annoying song. It's like, hey, Josh Bailey. I can't fucking stand it. It drives me nuts. I'm sure he's a great guy. But it's just so annoying. And he scores all the time, so sure as shit, the puck goes right to him. And it catches all the Penguins off guard. So I saw some people were like, well, Malkin was lazy getting back. He could have got a stick on it. The fucking goalie just turned the puck over to nobody for no reason he turned it right over to Josh Bailey in his own zone. And Bailey basically has a one on O breakaway now. And he comes in and I think it's Brian Dumoulin actually dives and gets a stick on it. So Jari probably would have made the initial save. He was in good position, but since Dumoulin got a stick on it, he kind of lifted Bailey's stick on his second effort. He chipped it and Jari's way out of position at that point. Cause he's already scrambling to get back in the net. He slides out of position, puck goes over his shoulder and in penguins lose and one of the worst plays I've ever seen. I hate to jump on Tristan Jari. He's done a lot of good things this year. But up to that point in the series, too, he hadn't been playing well. He really cost them game one. I mentioned they lost. He let in a bunch of goals from distance with no traffic. You don't want to do that in the playoffs. And an NHL goaltender should not. I know every goalie has a bad moment. But that's really difficult to come back from. It's one of those things where like, you just really let your team down. You're on a high. You're so focused. You're potentially going to win the game or you have a chance to win the game. You're playing really well. You're just waiting for your opportunity because on the other end of the ice, Ilya Sorokin was shutting the door, man, for the Islanders. Unbelievable young goaltender, a rookie goaltender. He is 25. I saw he was drafted. I, th- I know he was drafted a while ago. I didn't realize it was like six or seven years ago. They've been trying to get him to come over from the KHL. Ilya Sorokin, he, he won a KHL championship out there in Russia. Uh, so a good goaltender, a great goaltender, I should say too. But you know he was he was shutting the door, and the Penguins. It was just a matter of time, I think, because the chances they were getting, they were playing so well, forecheck, and they were uh, creating turnovers. Like I said, getting grade A chances. And Sorokin was stopping the puck with the knob of his goaltending stick. He's getting his skate blade on it against Crosby earlier in the series. So it's just been a it, it was a crazy. Uh, turn of events there because the Penguins really had all the momentum. Now the Islanders could have come down and score later in the game, but to lose the game like that, basically just give it away on a silver platter when you had easy plays to make, it's very difficult to come back from that. And I thought right then and there, I'm like, I'm never giving up on the Penguins. I never will. The Penguins could be down 3-0 and you know, I'm not giving up on them because I know the team, I know the leadership they have, the fight they have. They've done it before in the past, but that's really difficult to overcome. And the Penguins, you know, they really did overcome it to, to start game six. They came out firing and, you know, I was really surprised by that. But before I get into that, I want to go back to, to game five too. And really throughout the whole series that irritated me about Penguins head coach, Mike Sullivan. Now he's one of the best coaches in the NHL. I mean, he won back-to-back Stanley cups. He really turned, I've talked about it. He's turned the Penguins organization around from potentially being a bust or having like a kind of like a Peyton Manning type uh, stigma over it where you had Crosby and Malkin and we're only going to win one championship. Kind of like, you know, no knock on Ovechkin, but kind of like with the Capitals. They had generational talent and it looks like they're only going to get one championship out of it. And that's where the Penguins were. 
But Mike Sullivan and Jim Rutherford and other guys came in. But most uh, notably, Mike Sullivan really changed the identity of the team. But he almost like is Dan Bosmaning himself, if that makes sense. So for people who don't know out there, Dan Bosma was the Penguins coach. He came in in 2009 midseason when Michelle Therrien was fired. And he led the Penguins to the Stanley Cup. And they won that year. And he coached a couple years after that. But he really kind of got set in his ways. And that's what Mike Sullivan did. Mike Sullivan thinks, you know, my system works. N- nobody can change it. It doesn't need to be changed. We don't need to worry about anything, anything else. Let's just play our game. Play our game. Okay. I can understand that to a certain extent. But when you have home ice advantage. Now, some people that may don't maybe don't follow hockey as closely or don't quite know the rules and everything. I'll explain it to you. It's not just about the fan noise and all that. Home ice advantage is so significant in hockey because you get what's called last change. So the other team, to start the game, start every period, and then anytime there's a whistle, you'll see the referee goes over to the bench. He puts his arm up. The away team has to put their lineup on the ice first. Their first five, their five guys have to go on the ice first. Then once they do, the, the referee will put his arm down. At that point, the away team can't make any change until the play starts and then they can change on the fly. But then he'll point to the home bench, and the home bench gets to get the matchup, right? So in this case, every game the Islanders play for the last couple of years, but especially this year and every postseason game, doesn't matter if you're playing in November against the Detroit Red Wings or if they're playing in the Stanley Cup Final Game 7, the team that starts every period and every game for them, or the line, I should say, that starts every period and every game for them, is their fourth line. It's Casey Sezikis centering, Matt Martin on the left wing, Cal Clutterbuck on the right wing. You might think, okay, well, you know, these guys are jabronis. Yeah, from an offensive perspective, they are, but they really can set the tone. I think they call it the identity line. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting that wrong, but they have some sort of name for it. And they really come out and they set the tone and they make it very difficult on the other team to kind of get anything going. And they try to build momentum off of that shift. Because a lot of times the fourth line, the bottom six lines can be physical and they can really create momentum and get those top guys going. Uh, and that goes for any team. But that's what the Islanders kind of philosophy is. So they do that, and I, they've been doing it all series. But in Game Five, I'm thinking, okay, the Penguins—they got to get, they've got to get Crosby and Gensel and Rust away from that Sezikis line and away from defenseman Adam Pellick, who's really, really good, and Ryan Pulak, his partner. They're really good together. Just a whole five-man unit. They're good. They got to get Crosby away from him. So I see. I know, obviously, like I said, I know Sezikis that line, and Pellick and Pulak are starting the game, and uh, I, I see. I'm like, oh God. Crosby's out there again. So now I know that Sullivan thinks that Crosby's good enough to overcome that. I'm not saying he's not good enough. He's definitely good enough, and he's done so his whole career. He's overcome those things. But if you don't have to have him against that matchup, why do it? Why do you have such a hard head? Put your third line out there. Put Tanev's line out there or something. Make the Islanders try to chase the matchup. Because if they put that line out there to start the game, they're going to play 40, 50 seconds, somewhere in there. The defensemen play a little bit longer. They'll go off. Then you hit the line with Crosby against their, you know, a different unit, a different line matchup, a different defense pair. You get Crosby out there again. He gets a favorable matchup. It's not going to happen every time. You're going to get Crosby out there. He's going to get matched up against that Sezikis line and Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak. And the Islanders will make changes on the fly to make sure that they can get those matchups out there. But don't make it so easy for Barry Trotz. He's one of the best coaches in the NHL. But you're really just making it easy for him. And you're making it harder on yourself. Like, again, I'm not saying Crosby couldn't overcome that, but it just seems so stupid to me that you would just continually do it over and over and over and over again. And that's what Dan Bowsman did, and it drove me nuts. It's like it's like the my way or the highway thing. And it just, I understand it's your system. It's had success in the past, and it still has success and still can have success. 
but doesn't mean you have to be so hard headed that you're not going to deviate from it at all. It just drives me absolutely nuts. I wanted to get that out there because I was just fuming the whole series about that. You can ask my wife. I'm screaming at the TV. I think she got a couple videos of it. Probably not flattering videos, but I'm just yelling at the TV just like, I don't understand. I mean, obviously, Mike Sullivan's a smarter guy than me, but I've watched a lot of hockey in my life, and I know you work smarter, not harder. In any aspect of your life, you work smarter, not harder. So if you have a chance to get Crosby, the best player on the team, and that line, the best line they've got, out against a favorable matchup for a couple shifts, and that translates to offense or goals, you're looking at the Penguins advancing, whether or not Tristan Jari played bad or not. Because I'll be honest with you, Crosby and Malkin, you know, the Penguins have gone out three straight years in the first round. Last year, if you want to even count it the first round, it was the bubble against Montreal in the little preliminary uh, five-game series. They went out 3-1. to one. Um, It's just they've lost eight of their last 10 against the Islanders in the playoffs. And Crosby and Malkin really haven't had much production. It's not all on them because this year the Penguins were getting the production from the depth players. They were getting the secondary scoring, the ones that they haven't gotten the past couple years. And that's why this team was so much different to me. This team just seemed like they were completely different. They were getting depth scoring. They, they acquired Jeff Carter. I think he had 12 goals in 17 games as a Penguin. He played unbelievable throughout the regular season at the end and into the playoffs. And I thought potentially... Some line juggling also with Mike Sullivan. You could have got Jeff Carter, maybe a couple shifts up with Crosby to add a little bit of size because, like we said when Ray was on, Jake Gensel, Brian Russ, Crosby, those guys were taking a beating because they were out there continually again, again, and again, and again against that Sezekis line. It just drove me nuts. And those guys are taking a lot of heat, uh, Crosby and Malkin. But at the end of the day, man, it just you got to tip your cap to the Islanders. And they got the big win in Game 5. And then Game 6, like I said, the Penguins came out, they scored in the first minute and a half of the game, Jeff Carter. And then, you know, it just just didn't go well from there. The goaltending was a big issue. The Penguins would get the lead, they'd get some uh, momentum, they'd play well, and then boom, the Islanders come right back at the end of a period or something like that. Or, you know, and ultimately, the Penguins dropped the game. Um, they lost. They go out in the first round, like I said, for the uh, third straight year. And there's some questions going around right now uh, about the Penguins. It has been confirmed uh, via Elliot Friedman. He's one of the best. Um, he's like the Adam Schefter of the NHL for anybody that's not aware and anybody that knows who Adam Schefter is. He's like the, the NFL guy on ESPN breaks all the stories. Elliot Friedman's one of the best reporters in hockey media. He confirmed that uh, Mike Sullivan will be back next year as the Pittsburgh Penguins head coach. And I also heard that the new general manager who is Ron Hextall, we talked about and Brian Burke, the president of hockey operations per Elliot Friedman as well. In order for them to sign as the general manager and president of hockey operations in their contract in writing, they need ownership approval from Mario Lemieux before they can trade Evgeny Malkin or Sidney Crosby. Now, like I said before, Crosby ain't going nowhere. He's going to be a Penguin for the rest of his life. He's got four years left on his contract. The only way he would get traded is if he comes to Lemieux or somebody in in management and says, I want out. I just don't see that happening. Um, He came out after the game, really took... After I guess after Game 6, after the series was over, and really took all the blame because two of the goals in Game 6, you know, Crosby kind of lost his man a little bit and uh, wasn't able to make the play, and they ended up in the back of the net. Now, you would like Jari to make a save on some of those, but at the end of the day, the captain's got to take the blame. He gets the credit when they win. He's got to take the blame when they lose, and he takes it better than anybody, um, any captain, pretty much in any sport. He, he's one of the best leaders in the NHL and best leaders in sports, in my opinion. But he came out, and he basically said, you know, hey, Sid, 
or hey, Gino and Latang, I want to finish my career with them. We've got a lot more to prove. We think we've got a lot left into the tank. And I, I tend to agree with them because, like I said, they played outstanding this series. They deserved to win the game. I know that I'm not in this for moral victories, but if they even get average goaltending, they're playing the Boston Bruins in the second round. And I don't think anybody can deny that. They played better than the Islanders in almost every aspect of the game except the most important one, which is goaltending. And that really, really frustrates you. And I'm sure it frustrates Crosby, Malkin, Latang, Gansel, all those guys, Mike Sullivan, and even Tristan Jari himself. I know he came out and he said, I'll be better next year. Obviously, things didn't go the way I wanted. But, you know, like I said in the intro, man, it, I, I'm hearing rumblings that the Penguins may be uh, looking to, to acquire a, a veteran goaltender, just like I said they should have done at the trade deadline because something like this could happen. The inexperience of Tristan Jari potentially getting COVID, potentially getting injured. You saw Casey DeSmith got injured, their backup, so they had no option. When Jari's floundering out there, they got to just leave him out there to dry because you don't have a backup option. You know, you have Maxime Legacy, or however you say it. He's only had 20 starts in the NHL, and it's nothing to write home about. He goes in there, you're fucked. So you really had no option. And I know the Penguins, I heard they kicked the tires on Jonathan Quick. And maybe they should have tried a little bit harder to get somebody like Linus Allmark or somebody that could go in. Somebody that's a little bit of a veteran that's been there, it's played in the league. But reportedly, they're going to try to do that again this summer. And it's possible. You know, I know everybody always points to Marc-Andre Fleury, and we'll talk about him in the Vegas Golden Knights in a little bit. But... It's possible they could bring a guy like that back to push Jari, but I, I I'm just I'm wondering if the teammates and the fans and stuff can can trust Jari again. I mean, he's got to come out and be lights out. But you know, the first time he lets in the soft goal, he's gonna get that treatment. That the treatment that Murray got, the treatment that Flurry got, the treatment that Jari's getting. And not to get sidetracked, but I have to say this about Flurry. I know all the Penguin fans in the world they want Flurry to come back. Not all of them, me especially. But these people act like Flurry's some god. That's my big thing. And people that people that know me or I'm I'm friends with, they know that I don't not like Marc Andre Flurry as a guy. I think he's an outstanding player. He's an outstanding person. He was incredible for the Penguins at times. He was you know one of the best goalies in the league. He's just an upstanding guy. He's durable, always playing, never really injured, and. But like people act like they don't remember or just get the the history just gets rewritten that. Mark Andre Fleury, like from 2009 to uh, right after the Stanley Cup, so 2009, 2010 to like the 2013, 2014 mark, Fleury was all over the place. He had some performances. Now, I'm not a big advanced stats guy, but I've seen the advanced stats for expected saves versus goals allowed. And you look at Tristan Jari, who I mentioned had a horrible playoff, and everybody I think across the board has said that. His numbers in this series were better than the numbers that Flurry had in a couple of his series, especially 2009-2010, uh, the year after the Penguins won the Cup, and then I believe again in 2011-2012 in that historically ridiculous series against the Philadelphia Flyers, the Penguins lost in six, where every game was like 8-6. to six. But people forget about that. People wanted Flurry out of town. They would boo him. They would Bronx cheer him when he would score. And then all of a sudden, and being the guy he is, he's a great guy, he makes the decision to waive his no-trade clause so the Penguins can move him to Vegas or have Vegas select him in the expansion draft so they don't lose Matt Murray, who I remind, I remind you just came off of back-to-back Stanley Cup championships as a rookie. Okay, So anybody that comes out and says, they should have kept Flurry, they should have kept Flurry, I understand that's easy to say that now because Murray obviously fell off the face of the earth and Jari, from what he's shown us thus far, hasn't really shown us what Flurry did. 
But I want to point out, too, that Marc-Andre Fleury never, ever one time in his career as a Pittsburgh Penguin played as well as he's played the last couple years. This year, he's up for the Vezina Trophy, the best goaltender in the NHL. He very well may win it, and he will deserve it if he does. But he was never even close to that level as a Pittsburgh Penguin. And you could say, well, the Penguins play more loose. They play more offense. The the Knights are more, you know, they, they pack the house a little bit. No, they don't. No, they don't. The Golden Knights are one of the best offensive teams in the NHL. They've got electric players. They've got Mark Stone and uh, Riley Smith, William uh, Carlson. They've got a good damn team and a good offensive team. They've got good defense, but the Penguins had good defense too. The Penguins had great offense. So I don't want to hear that shit that they should have kept Flurry. It makes no sense to me. Nobody would have done that in their right mind. You got a guy that's 23 or whatever years old, 24, Matt Murray coming off back-to-back Stanley Cup championships as a rookie again, I'll say. And you got a guy that's 35 and Mark Andre Fleury, you got to let him go. It's easy 2020 to look back and say, well, if the Penguins would have had Fleury, they would have won a couple more series. Maybe so, maybe not. I've seen a plenty of times where Mark Andre Fleury, I mean, they had memes of the guy in 2012 with a beach ball behind him in the back of the net. There's been times where Fleury did not play well. And he, I still think, much like Jari cost him this series, that Fleury, and you can hate me for this, Penguins fans can hate me for this, but I've been consistent in my opinion of him and his play for a long time, that the Penguins would have more Stanley Cups if Fleury would have been playing up to the caliber he played in 2007, 2008, 2009. And even in the 08-09 Cup run, to be honest with you, his numbers weren't that great, but that team was just very good, and he made timely saves. I just wanted to get that out there about Marc-Andre Fleury, and I think that's what, I don't know if it's a Pittsburgh thing or everywhere, but it seems like they just run these goalies off, and then whenever they leave, or something else happens in the future, like even with the Steelers, people want to, they've been trying to run off Ben Roethlisberger for years, but it's just like a Pittsburgh thing. I don't know. And then people just, it's they it's revisionist history. Like that never happened to Marc-Andre Fleury and people didn't want him out of town and people weren't booing him. And now he's just some godlike figure. And I just wanted to make that known, my opinion on him. I think, he, again, he's a great guy, a great player, a Hall of Fame player, might go down in the top three of wins in all time in NHL history, which is remarkable. But the rant that I just gave was for the people that love Flurry and the people that went out and bought the um, Vegas Golden Knight jersey because they were like, oh, they should have never got rid of Flurry, blah, 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 blah. It's just, that's business. That's the way it goes. That's the way it had to go. And I wouldn't go back and change it if I'm the Penguins fan. And no GM and no person in the league would have done it differently. Uh, so I just wanted to get that off my chest. I've been thinking about that for a long time. I've had lots of debates with buddies about that who are big Marc-Andre Fleury fans. But um, And we'll talk about the Golden Knights here in a little bit. But, yep, the Penguins, they did lose the series. And, and uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting summer. I think, like I said, Crosby will be a Penguin forever. Um, and the GM needs approval to trade Malkin. I don't think he needs that approval to trade Latang. At least it's not in writing. But I think that's probably pretty similar to Malkin and Crosby. Um, but again, Malkin and, Cro- or Malkin and Latang, I should say, only have one year left on their contract, both of them. So I'm thinking there's probably not much you can do. You're not going to get any value for a guy that has one year left. Um, if you wanted to trade him, I don't think you should trade him. I think what you do is you look at this series and you say, the X factor in us losing was goaltending. You fix the goaltending, maybe add a little bit of grit, toughness a little bit. I think that's what Brian Burke and Ron Hextall will do. So guys like Jake Gensel and Brian Rust and those guys aren't getting thrown around and beat up by a team like the Islanders because it's likely you'll probably see the Islanders again in the playoffs next year if you make it. That's what you got to do. You just got to look at the this season, say it was a successful season in terms of how they played. The outcome obviously isn't what they wanted. 
but you don't want to change too much because, like I said, the goaltending is different. The Penguins are in the second round, and we're not having this conversation. So swig a beer for the New York Islanders for advancing. Um, you know they they deserved it. Like I said, they played well. They capitalized on their opportunities, and they got some fortuitous bounces, and they got the luck of having the Penguins be. Um, you know, have some poor goaltending, but who's to say they wouldn't have scored goals anyways if, if Jari's playing better. So credit to the New York Islanders and Barry Trotz um, as they go into the second round. I want to pivot over to the Canadian division right now and talk about one of the biggest, if not the biggest shocks of the playoffs so far, and that's the Edmonton Oilers being swept by the Winnipeg Jets. Now, I don't even think the Winnipeg Jets in a normal year, would have made the playoffs. But since it was the Canadian division, they came, they got in and pretty much did exactly what I said was going to happen a couple um, episodes ago and even earlier on in the podcast, maybe 10, 12 episodes ago, where if McDavid is as productive as he is, but when he gets to the playoffs, they're going to do exactly what Ryan Kessler did to him and exactly what, for the Penguins, what Sezekis and Martin and Clutterbuck did to the Crosby line and exactly what Adam Lowry for the Jets ended up doing to McDavid and the Jets team just as a whole did to McDavid. They blanket him. They're hooking him. They're grabbing him. They're tripping him. They're slashing him. All kinds of stuff. Roughing him up. Roughing him up after the whistle. I mean, it's it's exactly. It's not. It's not a surprise to me that that's what happened. It's a surprise to me that it was that effective and they were able to oust the Oilers in four games. I saw a lot of people online complaining. I saw a lot of people online, man. They were complaining, saying. I've seen at least 23 infractions the referees should have called. McDavid hasn't drawn a penalty in his last eight games. He didn't draw a penalty in the whole series, which is still pretty remarkable to me. You know, I know I'm making fun of these people that were complaining, but that is crazy that McDavid, his speed and the amount of times he has the puck and his strength and his ability to get to the net, that he didn't draw one single penalty in the series. But my big thing is, like, I agree. I've said for a long time and many times on this podcast that the officiating in the NHL is atrocious especially in the playoffs. And they want that's how the league wants it to be officiated. But you know that. You know that going in. Everybody knows that going in. So there's not really anything you can do to change it. You just got to play through it. I mean, there's guys like look at Mario Lemieux. You know, he said that he retired in 1997 because he said he didn't want to play in a garage league anymore. They were clutching, they were grabbing, they were holding him. They're not good enough to keep up with him. We've been over this. But Sidney Crosby's been dealing with that his whole career. When he was young in the NHL, same shit happened to him. You know, look at Austin Matthews, same thing's happening to him. That's what happens when the NHL, they glorify these guys that, you know, work hard. They might not have the most skill, but they, that's the only way they can even the playing field. They know the referee's not going to call everything. You can't call a penalty 500 times a game. So they're going to get away with a lot of stuff in the playoffs. It's more physical. And until McDavid adjusts his game, they're going to have the same results. I'm sorry if you're an Oilers fan, they're going to have the same results. And maybe you trade a guy like Ryan Nugent Hopkins to potentially get a goaltender that can help you. You trade some draft picks, some you know, some young talent, maybe to get you a guy that can score, but also has a little bit of sandpaper, a little little sandpaper finish. You know, you need somebody with a little bit of grit, a little bit of toughness. And like I said, with the goaltender, Kenny Holland, the general manager, he spent a long time in Detroit, had a lot of success. He's trying to turn things around in Edmonton. He came out and said they want to bring back Mike Smith. Uh, Mike Smith's a journeyman goaltender, in my opinion. He played a long time in Arizona. Uh, he played in Tampa, I believe. He played in Calgary, now in Edmonton, a couple years. And to me, he's just not the answer. You got to go out and get a bona fide young goaltender that's going to be able to kind of just grow with the McDavid and Drysaddle group and grow with that core. And I know, you know, 
the Columbus Blue Jackets, they're looking to potentially move a goaltender. They've got two young goaltenders that um, I believe they're looking to move, and it's Elvis Merzlikens and Jonas Corposalo, two great goaltenders and two goaltenders with a hell of a lot of potential that I could see the Oilers maybe making a deal for. And even uh, I've seen the Oilers have been tied to ex-Penguin goaltender and current Ottawa Senator goaltender Matt Murray. I believe before he got traded to Ottawa, the Oilers had kicked the tires on him a little bit. I'm not sure that would be a good fit or they'd be able to make a trade because he does have a lot of term and he has a, a, a decent cap hit in, a, on a team like the Oilers that are a little bit cap-strapped uh, with some of the money that Dreisaitl and McDavid are making. But, you know, if I'm Ken Holland or I'm McDavid, I'm not really sure what's going to happen up there. I mean, McDavid had four points in four games, which is still pretty good. I mean, point per game, but from what he's able to do usually and what you're used to being seeing from him, and Dreisaitl had five points in four games, they were really neutralized, um, and it was pretty impressive to see what the Jets did. You got to tip your cap to Paul Maurice, whether you agree with it or not. His strategy worked to be all over McDavid, all over Drysaddle, and the old adage that every coach in every level of any sport has ever told you: you know, you don't let the other team's stars beat you. You take the stars away and make the other guys beat you, and that's exactly what the Jets did. So you got to tip your cap to them. Uh, they're going to move on to the second round, and they're awaiting the winner of the. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. So I'm recording this on Sunday. And last night, Saturday, the Montreal Canadiens have forced Game 7 with an overtime win. Um, just an unbelievable game and an unbelievable meltdown for the Leafs so far in the series. But they the Habs were up 2-0 in the game, and the Leafs fought back, but they couldn't get the job done. Bad turnover at your own blue line. Ends up in the back of your net. Now all the marbles are on the line at the uh, Scotiabank Arena up there in Toronto. And they have no fans at their games either, so that's going to be tough. I, I think, honestly, if you're a Maple Leafs fan, though, you know, or if you're a Maple Leaf, I should say, you got to be pretty happy, honestly, because that pressure would be excruciating up there if you've got those fans in there, because those fans are very, very harsh on their team. And they had a 3-1 series lead. Now anything can happen. The way Carey Price is playing, I know I buried Carey Price on an episode or two ago saying, I don't think he's the best goaltender in the NHL. I think he's overrated, blah, 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 blah. Well, he's shoving it up my ass for sure because he's playing out of his mind right now. And he can, he's in one of those modes where he can steal a series, and that's exactly what he's doing against the uh, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs because in a game, uh, game six, the Maple Leafs, especially in overtime, were all over Montreal. They had chance after chance after chance, and Carey Price just kept coming up big and you know, he, he's playing a hell of a series. And the, um, you know, you got to figure too with John Tavares being out, that hurts the Toronto Maple Leafs. But he is skating. Um, he's back skating, which is great to see. He's back on the ice. So hopefully his concussion and everything wasn't too serious. He can get back out there if they are to advance. I don't believe he'll be able to play game seven. He's been up in the stands, which has been pretty cool to see. He's been up there cheering his teammates on. And, um, you know, it, it's pretty awesome. But if you look at the Maple Leafs, they're 0-6 in closeout games in a series in the Marner and Matthews era. I mean, they haven't been showing up at all. Matthews has four points in five games. I don't think he has a single point since game two, I want to say, or maybe he doesn't have a goal since game two. But otherwise, from what they're used to seeing from him, similar to McDavid, just not getting the job done. And, uh, 
it's pretty crazy because the, the Leafs fans are in full meltdown mode and they're very, very pessimistic about their chances in Game 7. It's on home ice. Again, no fans there. They did have fans for the first time in a Canadian city in Game 6 in Montreal, and it was pretty awesome to see. It seemed like 2,500 fans felt like 20,000 fans. They were very loud, very enthusiastic. and There were some Leafs fans there, which I thought was pretty funny. And I saw some people paid $1,500, $2,000 for a ticket as a Leafs fan to go watch your team lose. Again, not what I were not what I would spend for a sporting event ever, especially if there's a chance that your team loses. But it was pretty funny outside the uh, the arena before the game. These Habs fans were chanting 67, 67, because that's the last time the Maple Leafs have won a Stanley Cup, and that reminded me of you know a, a time that I never loved my wife more than this moment. Like it, I knew I already knew she was the one, but at this moment I'm like. No, they don't make them any better than this because we were at a Penguins game a few years ago and we were playing the Maple Leafs. Now, anybody that knows anything about the Maple Leafs, their fans travel well. So when you they play in Pittsburgh, it's cheaper for the Maple Leafs fans to drive to Pittsburgh or fly to Pittsburgh, whatever the case is. It's not that far of a drive. But and pay, pay for tickets and go to the game there than probably it is up in uh, Toronto because the games are just so packed. Everybody wants to go. Standing room only is like $350. So... Whenever they're playing in Pittsburgh or really any arena, but definitely in Pittsburgh, it's almost like a Leafs home game. Like sometimes when they score a goal, it's like, holy shit, you look around and it's very loud, the roar that they get. But these Maple Leafs fans were walking by and they said something. I think the Penguins might have lost a game or and they said something to us or someone near us. And my wife starts chanting, 67, 67. I had no idea she even knew what you know she was talking about, but apparently she listens to me whenever I'm chirping the Maple Leafs, but I knew it that day that I had picked the right one. So it reminded me of a, a hilarious story that that happened. But again, the Maple Leafs, they've got game seven at home. They got to beat the Montreal Canadiens. And it's pretty crazy because a lot of people were thinking of a dream matchup between Toronto versus Edmonton for the North division title to get into the final four for, to, uh, to play in the conference final or what would be the conference finals for the Stanley cup. But it might be the Montreal Canadiens versus the Winnipeg Jets. I'm not sure Sportsnet up in Canada and the NHL really wants to see that matchup. Um, but that very well may happen. So swig a beer for the Montreal Canadiens coming back down 3-1. Got a chance to win Game 7 on the road and go on to the second round to face the Jets. And uh, swig a beer also for Carey Price, man. These guys and that team are playing really, really well. I want to pivot over and talk a little bit about the uh, Washington Capitals series against the Boston Bruins. I mentioned the Boston Bruins have already advanced. They beat the Capitals in five games. I thought the Bruins would win. I picked them in six. I didn't think it would be that short of a series, but the Capitals really just ran out of gas. I mean, you could see it uh, from pretty much game three on. They didn't have the legs. They didn't have the energy. The Bruins were really physical. They were attacking off the rush. They were forechecking the hell out of the Capitals. The Capitals were on their heels a lot. They were missing Evgeny Kuznetsov. I talked about in my playoff preview. That's a big blow to their top six and their power play. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm not surprised that the Bruins won, but I'm surprised in the in the manner they won. Um, the Capitals won game one and then the Bruins won game two. And then basically the Bruins just won. Like I said, they won four straight. They ousted them in five games. Brad Marchand played well. David Poshnok, hell of a series. And Ovechkin, he really was kind of held off the score sheet for the most part. He had a couple points, a couple goals. Um, didn't really dominate as, as you would like to see if you're a Capitals fan or if you're in that organization. And even their general manager, like I said, Brian McClellan, he said they ran out of gas and, they don't really have much youth coming up from the uh, their farm system, and their general manager said the same thing as that too. He said, 
you know, we're, we're not going to be able to inject a lot of youth into our lineup. We're going to have to maybe use free agency or some trades. And he said, basically, other than Ovechkin and Backstrom, everybody's on the table as far as trades go. Uh, but Ovechkin actually is an unrestricted free agent. So he's not currently under contract. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, he's going to sign with Washington. Well, yeah, he's definitely going to sign with Washington. You know, he's not, he would never sign with any other NHL team, I don't think. A few years ago, I saw an article coming up um, or coming back to life a little bit in, about an article from 2013 where Ovechkin said if he wasn't going to play in Washington, he'd love to play in Montreal. That's his favorite city in the NHL and his favorite place to play. Uh, but that that was, again, like six years ago. Um, well, my, I think it was 2013, so eight years ago, math guy. Um, but I don't see that happening. The only thing that could happen is him potentially going back to Russia, but definitely not now. I think he's on the Gretzky chase. And from what I've read and what I've heard, um, Ovechkin pretty much has a number in place with the Capitals. Their owner, Ted Leonsis, he knows how much Ovechkin has ma- meant to that organization in terms of from a financial perspective. He's made them billions of dollars over the last 13 years of his contract and last 16 years of his career and all the success they've had. He's made them billions. And from what I've heard, he's got a, uh, he's looking for a four year deal from the capitals and it's a two digit number per year. So you're looking at 10 plus million a year. And I think if I'm the capitals and I think Ted Leones, this will, they'll give him whatever he wants. Uh, because basically he now the, the capitals fans, I'm not saying they're satisfied with one cup, but if like Ovechkin never would have won a cup, they would be it would be horrible if you're a Capitals fan. But now they kind of got the monkey off their back, so it's almost like they're playing with house money now a little bit. So I think what they can sell the fans is yeah we're gonna try to build around Ovechkin and Backstrom because that four year deal will tie him to Backstrom's contract, so they would essentially retire the same year or their contracts would be up the same year. But they've got the uh, Gretzky chase now too to market that Ovechkin has a realistic shot to pass Wayne Gretzky for most goals in NHL history. So it's possible that, uh, you know, they can go on and potentially, you know, get some young talent and build around them and, and win again. They've definitely still got a pretty good team, but they've got some work to do. They don't really have anything coming up from the farm system. They've got some question marks and goal with Ilya Samsonov. He had a bit of a gaffe similar to Tristan Jari. Um, in game three, I think it was against the Boston Bruins where he basically just left the puck there and allowed Craig Smith to wrap it into an empty net. And that they never really recovered from that either. So on top of the them being out of gas and then, then that play by Ilya Samsonov, and then you look at Vitek Vanacek, uh, he, he really didn't play much and didn't play well in the playoffs. He ended up getting hurt. Um, so they've got some question marks in goal. And Ovechkin, like I said, he's unrestricted free agent. Uh, the contract, I think, will get done. But with the expansion draft... This summer, you have to protect guys that have no move clauses, no trade clauses, and obviously you have to protect guys you want to keep. If the Capitals are smart, which I think they will be, I mean, they're smarter than me as an organization, they will wait until after the expansion draft to sign Ovechkin. They know they're going to sign him. Just don't make it official because that way they can protect somebody else they want to protect, knowing they don't have to waste the protection on Ovechkin because after the expansion draft, He'll be an unrestricted free agent, and they can just sign him then. I think that'll happen a lot around the NHL. Um, Taylor Hall more than likely will do that as well for the Boston Bruins, and he's been an outstanding fit for the Bruins. He played very well in the series against the Capitals. In Game 2, the Bruins were in danger of going down 2 nothing. and like I said, the Caps being out of gas, you never know. The whole series could change if the Caps go up 2 nothing there. But Taylor Hall had a beautiful goal, just a hard-working goal. Nice dangle, but it was able to pound it in. Um, 
right late in the third period to tie it up and they go on to win in overtime. I think it was Brad Marchand that scored the goal and he gets out of the first round, Taylor Hall that is, for the first time in his NHL career. That's pretty hard to believe and you got to figure he's chomping at the bit uh, you know, to get to the second round and as I'm recording this now, like I said, it's Sunday. They've already played game one against the Islanders and the Boston Bruins did win that game. They're up one nothing in the series. I believe they won the game at 5-2 or 6-2. Uh, so they they already have started game uh, one of that series in, in the second round series. But Taylor Hall, man, he, like I said, he's got to be chomping at the bit, just raring to go and wants to, to play in Boston. I think he's already come out and said, hey, I want to be in Boston for a long time. I'd like to sign a long-term deal here. And I think he'll do the exact same thing Ovechkin's going to do. He's going to wait. Um, and if he has a deal in place potentially with Boston, you know, he'll wait until after the expansion draft to allow Boston to protect one other guy they'd like to protect. And then they could sign him after the fact so they won't lose him. Um, so that's that series. So swig of beer for the Boston Bruins. I mentioned they, they already beat the Islanders in game one, but they ousted the Washington Capitals in five games. Taking a look at the other series in the NHL, man, the Colorado Avalanche just absolutely shit pumped the St. Louis Blues. And you got to figure, and even Gabriel Landeskog, the captain of the Avalanche, came out after the series and said Ryan O'Reilly's comments uh, about how the Blues thought they were going to beat the the Avalanche and they could slow them down, they can beat them. It really got under their skin and fired them up a little bit. And it didn't fire anybody up more than Nathan McKinnon. He becomes the third player in the last 30 years in a four-game sweep series to have six goals and nine points. The other two are Evgeny Malkin in 2009 in the conference finals against the Carolina Hurricanes where he just dominated. One of the best goals I've ever seen, the Spinorama backhand roof job for the hat trick in that uh, game two. And then Johan Franzen in the 2008 conference semis versus Colorado for the Detroit Red Wings. So remarkable what McKinnon's been able to do. He's the best player in the world for my money. He's better than McDavid. He's more valuable, I think. He's so electric to watch. He's better on the defensive end. He's stronger. He's a little bit bigger. Um, not quite as good of a skater, but McDa- or Mc- McKinnon's one of the best skaters in the league. So it's not far off. And, and uh, you know, like we Ray and I talked about last week, Nazem Kadri. I don't think we actually ever got to the conversation about Kadri, but he got a suspension, uh, an eight-game suspension in the series uh, for a head hit to Justin Falk, the defenseman for the St. Louis Blues. I believe he's trying to get it down to five to six games. Um, he's appealing it right now. So I, I think the appeal was heard this past Thursday. I'm not sure if a decision has been made yet, but he's really trying to get it dropped down to five or six games, I think, and he already sat out two games of it. So he might miss a couple of the games here in the second-round series um, against the Vegas Golden Knights, who I'll pivot over to them now. They uh, beat the Minnesota Wild in seven games. Pretty crazy. So I know a lot of people looked at Minnesota and thought Vegas was going to roll over them. And I said it a couple times, Vegas um, really couldn't beat Minnesota. Minnesota had their number. They've got a good team. They play very structured. Kirill Kaprizov, what a player. Just an unbelievable guy. On the back end, they've got Matt Dumba, Jared Spurgeon playing great. Cam Talbot has a bit of a resurgence. Uh, he was kind of just left for dead in, in Edmonton a couple years ago. Now he's really battled back in the goal crease. He's playing unbelievable hockey for them, the Minnesota Wild. They've got a bright future. I think they really just need a young centerman uh, to really get them over the hump because they really don't have much depth in, at center ice. And if they can get a young centerman, maybe you know with some of the salary cap implications some of these teams are facing this year, and it's possible that you know they can – Get a, get a favorable deal and not have to give up too much or maybe sign somebody in free agency. I don't have their cap number in front of me for next year, but it's going to be interesting to see how they can build on that. And I think their general manager, Billy Guerin, one of the best guys in the NHL, uh, I think he's really going to 
going to be able to make a make a big impact on that team, and they're going to be a very, very strong team in the Central Division for years to come. And this Kaprizov kid, man, he's an absolute stud. If he doesn't win the Calder Trophy, like I said, everybody's going to riot. This kid is unreal. And I don't want to hear that shit like I talked about a couple episodes ago that he's you know 25 years old. It's his first year in the NHL. It's pretty crazy. I got a funny story I heard about uh, Kaprizov on Spittin' Chicklets, uh, the podcast from Barstool Sports with Ryan Whitney and Paul Bissonette. And uh, it was pretty crazy. I think it was Marcus Foligno who plays for the Wild. He's on the team with Kaprizov. And during the training camp, they had like the COVID groups or whatever. So you only had like six or seven guys in each group. And uh, <laughs> the PR guy for the team, he reached out to everybody on a group text and said, okay, here's your groups for the first day of practice. You know, group A, group B, group C. And Kaprizov was in like group C with a bunch of scratches and like a bunch of the young guys and the you know, guys from developmental camp and all that stuff and guys that more than likely won't play or won't make the team. And Kaprizov texts back to the entire group and said like, whoa, I want to play with the stars. I don't want to play with the shitty players or something like that. And like he didn't realize that it was uh, sent to everybody on the team. So fuck, like the next day at practice, everybody was just like roasting them. And it was they were all good sports about it. It was pretty funny, but kind of like an, an odd team building thing. But it was pretty funny that he said that because he's just that focused. He's that good. Just a young Russian, just a typical Russian player, typical Russian response there for sure. But, you know, it's pretty awesome. And, and Felino even said it's made them closer. They bonded as a unit, as a team. And it's really shown they've taken strides this year. If they can go out and get a young centerman, like I said, the sky's the limit for Minnesota. It's pretty awesome to see if you're a wild fan. I mean, that hockey, hockey is crazy up in Minnesota. That state is just, they love their hockey. So, it would mean nothing more uh, to the NHL and to that state for Minnesota to have a good team again. It's been a long time coming, uh, but I think the future is very, very bright. So swig a beer for the Minnesota Wild, but they couldn't get the job done against Vegas because I think right now Vegas is just a little bit deeper. And Vegas is going to play the Colorado Avalanche. And I know I went on my Marc-Andre Fleury rant earlier, but I've said this on previous episodes that I talked about my mistress NHL team. My mistress NHL team is the Colorado Avalanche. I'll be rooting for them. I hope they win four straight against Vegas. I want Vegas the hell out of here. Um, but it's going to be an awesome series because these two teams are so electric. There's no way it's going to go four, I don't think. I think it might go seven. Um, but these two teams, they battled heavy this year. A couple of their regular season games were must-see TV. I can't wait to watch this. Um, going to be one of the most electric series in the playoffs. Speaking of electric series, I got to talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers. What a series. I mean, last week we talked about how Tampa was just dominating. Um, they were up three games to one. And Sergei Bobrovsky and Chris Dreger, the backup goaltender, really just weren't playing well, weren't getting the job done. And Joel Quinville, uh, the veteran coach, he switched over to rookie Spencer Knight, his first playoff start as a goaltender. In Game 5, he let in the first shot he faced, which was a pretty poor play by Keith Yandel at the blue line, the uh, Panthers defenseman, and gave up a two-on-one. So not, you can't really fault Spencer Knight there, but then he slammed the door. I think he had 32 saves on 33 shots. The Panthers were able to win that game and force a Game 6, but ultimately weren't able to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, man, the Lightning have an absolute wagon. Like I said, Kucherov, he's been out all year. He missed the entire season, comes back for the playoffs. What's he do? 11 points in his first six games, dominating out there. Just an unbelievable performance. And like John Cooper said, like I talked about earlier in the podcast, they've got a team full of Ferraris. they got a couple Grand Cherokees and Jeep Wranglers for some grit, but this team's going to be very difficult to stop. So swig a beer for the Tampa Bay Lightning because this next series they're going to play against, against the Carolina Hurricanes who ousted the uh, Nashville Predators in six games, just as I predicted, I might add. What a series that's going to be. 
because the the Predators, they did a much better job than I thought they would do. Like I said, they had some pride. I thought they would force it to six, and they did more than that. They could have won this series. And in game five, they had a chance to win the game. They had a poor turnover, and then uh, Marty Nietzsche, what an unbelievable dangle at the uh, blue line. And then he goes around as a nice wrapper on goals, scores it, ties it up, and they end up winning in overtime. And then in, I believe in game six, they won in overtime as well on a Jacob Slavin shot that was tipped by Sebastian Ajo. So that matchup, I mean, some of these second-round matchups, you got Tampa versus Carolina, two high-flying teams. It's going to be must-watch TV. And then, like I said, you got Vegas and Colorado. I cannot wait for those two series. It's going to be unbelievable to watch. Um, and as I'm recording this, I believe Sunday night, Game one of the Vegas and Colorado series kicks off. So by the time you guys are hearing this, that game will be over. But make sure you guys tune into the rest of the series and really all these series because it's going to be a lot of fun. Even if you're a Penguin fan and you're a little bit disheartened by their performance and they're out of the playoffs already, just as a hockey fan, and I've said it before, if you're a fringe hockey fan or you're not quite into hockey, watch Tampa and Carolina or Vegas and Colorado, and I guarantee you'll be a fan of the of the sport because it's going to be so much fun to watch. So swig a beer for the NHL playoffs advancing over to round two. One note that I wanted to mention uh, before I pivot over to some other sports topics and some other storylines from around the NHL is the Tampa Bay Lightning and this ridiculous jersey policy they have. So I don't know if everybody's seen this, but to fill you in, the Lightning have a no road team jersey policy in certain sections of their arena. So basically, in 2015, the first three rows by the glass and all seats in the Chase Club, wherever the Chase Club is, I assume it's the club level right by, right, you know, right across from the benches or right behind the benches and behind the penalty box, whatever the case is, they're not allowed to have opposing team gear at all. Not not just jerseys, but hats, anything. You can't have that. So it started because season ticket holders in those premium areas requested that that be the case. They were upset that, you know, I guess other teams were infiltrating and they were wearing, you know, I'm sure like the Penguins, they they travel well. The Capitals travel well. Like I mentioned, the Leafs travel well. Uh, the Florida Panthers aren't that far away. So you saw that in this series. And there was a video that came out. This guy videotaped with this fucking jackass guy that works for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now I know he's just doing his job, but he came off. And admittedly, I didn't see if there was any conversations before this video took place but he's trying to tell this guy and his 11 year old son that they have to take off their florida panthers jerseys if they want to stay in that seat now granted it's like the warm-up the lights aren't even on yet so the warm-up actually hasn't even started yet they're just in their seat early that's the way i like to get to games i like to get in my seat I like to get my beer I like to get my food i get to you know chill get ready for the game and that's what these kids were these guys were doing it's a, it's a father and a son the kid's 11 he's a florida panthers fan and it's like, what the fuck is that? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And that, that's, that reminds me, I know there's some other teams in the league that do that. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I know Tampa did that too, where in 2016, when the Penguins were playing there in the conference final, you couldn't buy tickets to the game if you didn't have a Florida address. So I don't know if they're just like super insecure as a fan base. I mean, they're, they've come a long way. They've been pretty good the last decade, and they won a Stanley Cup in 2004. But I mean, come on, like you, it's, this is America. Like I should be able to wear whatever Jersey I want. I bought the ticket. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever saw. And right before I uh, started recording this podcast, I saw some of the outrage that they got online and that video dropped that the Tampa Bay lightning have reversed that policy. So, you know, good on them. They should have, they should have never had it in the first place. That's a joke. You should be able to wear whatever the fuck you want to wear to a game. 
And it's not Florida Panthers fans' fault that Tampa Bay fans don't want to, you know, sell out their arena or don't want to go to the games. And a lot of times, too, like Florida, you know, I have a good buddy, Dustin, lives in Florida. A lot of people that live in Florida aren't from Florida. So, like, just because you moved to Tampa doesn't mean you have to become a Lightning fan. You could still be a Pittsburgh fan, or maybe you lived in Miami or Sunrise and you're a Florida Panthers fan, and you still live in Florida, but you want to drive up and you want to see your team play on the road, and more power to you. You should be able to do that. So I think it's an absolute joke they even had that rule to begin with, and I wanted to mention it on here, and I'm so glad they changed the rules. So imagine fucking chirping an 11-year-old kid saying, you got to take your Florida Panthers jersey off. Get the fuck out of here. I need a swig of beer for that. The last two notes on uh, hockey I want to mention is if you if you know anything about the NBA, they have that great show on TNT with Charles Barkley and Ernie Johnson and Kenny Smith and Shaq. It's called Inside the NBA where they do analysis after the game. They do analysis at halftime um, on big games on TNT. It's one of the best shows, best sports shows on TV. It gets uh, nominated for Emmys every year. I guess they're going to have an Inside the NHL now on TNT next year as the NHL's broadcasts move over to TNT and ESPN. But for the TNT one, they got Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky stepped down as an ambassador for the Edmonton Oilers, and now he's going to be a um, an analyst for the NHL on TNT. So it's pretty awesome. It's about time. Ray and I talked about it. It's about time they get people that could actually play the game at a high level, high-end you know, hockey IQ guys, high-end uh, producing players, just legends of the game. And it's reported that uh, Wayne Gretzky and Charles Barkley are like really, really good buddies. They play golf together. So um, Charles Barkley was instrumental in getting Gretzky to do this. So we'll see who else they can get. I know um, they've hired, between ESPN and TNT, they've hired a couple guys like Eddie Olchek and Kenny Albert and uh, Ray Ferraro up in uh, Canada. He's one of the best between the glass uh you know, analysts of all time, one of my favorite guys. And for any NHL um, video game players out there, he's the the color commentator for the NHL video game. He's he's pretty awesome. But they're they're putting together a nice team, and it'll be interesting to see who they can uh, package with Wayne Gretzky. Uh, so I, I'm really looking forward to that. And last note, Seth Jones, the young stud defenseman for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Just before I started recording this, I saw that he has told the. Columbus Blue Jackets that he will not re-sign. He has one year left on his deal at $5.4 million um, next year. So he told them basically he intends to test free agency. And I guess it's, I don't know if they have beef, but John Davidson, who's the president of hockey operations, he left a couple years ago. Now he's back. I don't know if he has beef with Seth Jones or Seth Jones doesn't really like him or whatever the case is or doesn't want to... Um, you know, follow the direction he thinks the team's going to go with John Tortorella leaving and all that stuff. But he's basically told the team, hey, I'm not going to come back. I'll play next year, but I won't be resigning. Uh, so Aaron Portsline of The Athletic, one of the better uh, beat writers in the NHL for the Columbus Blue Jackets, he reported that he'll likely be traded this summer because you got to figure they're going to try to get something for him. He's one of the best defensemen in the NHL. So going to be awesome to see how that plays out and see where he ends up going. So swig a beer for Seth Jones. And if you're a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, you got to be really, really questioning your organization because Columbus, it's a nice city, and I've talked about it, but it's not exactly a destination for a professional athlete because you've seen now Sergei Bobrovsky, Artemi Panarin, Matt Duchesne, and now Seth Jones saying, I want out of here. So some pretty high-end players, and it's going to be very difficult for them to overcome that. So again, swig a beer for Seth Jones for making the decision that's best for him, and we'll see where he ends up. 
two entertainment notes I wanted to talk about. Uh, one of them has to do with sports, but first I wanted to talk about one of my favorite shows and my wife and I love this show and I know it's very polarizing. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people do like it. I don't understand how anybody doesn't like it. I think it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's corny at times, but I think it's pretty funny, but it's the show Friends. So Friends aired from 1994 to 2004, which is pretty crazy. I didn't realize it was 1994, but it's pretty awesome to watch. Some of my favorite episodes are those earlier episodes um, whenever they don't have cell phones and stuff. And it's just like, you know, Joey and Chandler are living together and all that. None of the like love interests and love stories and all that, you know, get involved. But that, that, those are some of my favorite parts of the show. But they had their friends reunion um, this past week. I think it was on Thursday. It was released on HBO Max. I think it's also on Amazon Prime if you have that, if you want to watch it. It was pretty interesting. It's about two hours. And it was pretty cool to see them. I mean, honestly, they had them uh, outside. So they had them all live. They had like a live crowd there, socially distanced for COVID. But they had the iconic couch from Central Perk, which I think they're actually sitting on the couch too in the opening whenever they're at their fountain. And that's where this setting was. They're at that fountain that's in the opening credit with the great um, intro song, which I don't even know who that band is that played the Friends intro song, but I don't know if they've ever made another song after that. But they're probably just riding off the coattails of those royalties because that song gets played all the time on Sirius XM and Friends is on every single night. Like my wife watches it all the time right before bed. It's on like TBS or Nickelodeon or whatever. And we watched it on Netflix when it was on Netflix. But it's almost like The Office to me. Like I used to just pop, put on The Office before it was moved from Netflix to Peacock. I do the same thing now with Friends. We kind of just watch it before we go to bed sometimes. And, you know, the one gripe I had with the reunion was like, it just seemed weird that James Corden. So James Corden, he's a funny guy. I know some people don't like him. I don't think he's the best guy, but he's a funny guy. He's a talk show host from England. And I don't know why he was there. Like it didn't make any sense why he was there. I know they have to have somebody to like moderate the show and ask the questions and all that. But like, I feel like they could have got somebody better. That's just my opinion. I know a lot of people were upset that Paul Rudd wasn't in the reunion because he did play a pivotal role, I believe on maybe the last season or the last two seasons. He was on a, a bunch of episodes. He was a love interest of Phoebe, who's Lisa Kudrow. Um, but my wife pointed out that would have been awesome if they could have got Paul Rudd to be the guy because he would have been funny. He would have done a great interview and stuff like that. He's a big mega star. Um, you know, one of my favorite actors, he's, he's, he's fucking hilarious, but it just seemed like it was a little bit odd. And like, they, they had guys like Justin Bieber on there and like people that just weren't really involved with the the friend show. And I know they want to get big time celebrities, but the whole thing was pretty cool. Like they came in one by one, they were going onto the set. They were getting emotional, hugging each other. They haven't been in the same room all together, I guess is what the, uh, the documentary or the reunion said, since the show ended, uh, which is pretty hard to believe because the throughout the entire show, they were saying they were all best friends and all that stuff. And they really developed a, a legitimate friendship. And it was pretty, uh, pretty awesome to, to watch and pretty emotional, you know, for the, for them. Like I'm not that invested in the show. I really liked it, but I know my sister Erin was obsessed with it because she was like kind of her era, you know, she was in college in in like, um, you know, 94, that, that time frame. So she's, she's basically, you know, living the same time that they were living in that, in that same point in your life. So she always loved the show, but it was pretty cool. And uh, the one thing I noticed online was a lot of people were saying a lot of things that I don't want to get into about Matthew Perry, who plays Chandler. It looked to me like he had some poor dental work. Now, I don't know his history with any potential, you know, substance abuse or anything like that. I don't want to get into that stuff because I don't know. But he had like, it looked like he got his teeth whitened or like he got new crown teeth. 
And it looked like, honestly, one of the episodes of Friends where Ross does that. He, like, bleaches his teeth to impress his date, and they're, like, neon, you know, <laughs> they're that light. Uh, and that's what it looked like. But it also changed Chandler's voice and Matthew Perry's voice a little bit. It made him have, like, almost a lisp. It was just, it was very odd, and I thought they glossed over his involvement in the show a little bit so i'm not sure why they did that i know they have to condense it down they probably have hours and hours of footage but they only wanted it to be about two hours of an actual reunion um but they showed all the cast members and how they got cast they had the creators of the show there they had some couple special guests in the crowd um it was pretty fun and, and, and pretty cool to see if you if you like the show you enjoy the show it was enjoyable and obviously most of the reunion was focused on Ross and Rachel, who is Jennifer Aniston, who, my God, Jennifer Aniston still looks like she's 25. She still looks unbelievable. I think she's in her 50s. And then uh, David Schwimmer, who plays Ross, their love interest in the show. And it's revealed, which you know a lot of fans probably suspected, but are, are really happy to see that they actually, in season one, they actually had an off-screen like, love interest, I guess. They really liked each other, but it never worked out because they were always in relationships and stuff. So I thought that was kind of revealing. It was pretty cool. Um which probably made their acting a little bit better. I think Jennifer Aniston admitted that that it was that there was an element of realness to their acting and their their love scenes and stuff like that. So, all in all, I mean, I think it's it's worth the watch to me. If you like Friends, if you don't, I don't know what's going on in your head, but if you like Friends, it's pretty cool to see. Um, they're definitely a little bit older. Joey's still hilarious. Um, obviously, like I said, Jennifer Aniston still awesome. She's the A list celebrity who I, I was pretty surprised because she's like one of the best. You know, like I said, A-list celebrity, but she'll never be known for anything more than friends to me. Like if you think if you tell me Jennifer Aniston, I immediately think friends. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I'm not sure those people. I mean, I know they're living off millions and millions of dollars because that show just keeps getting picked up and different stream services and all that and all the reruns and everything. But I know like a lot of actors probably she'd probably want to be more well known for some of her films she's done. Um, obviously, I don't know her personally, but that's how I would feel. But at the end of the day, it was one of the most iconic shows really an entertainment history. I think it had 57 million people. These numbers might be off, but 57 million people right around there watched the series finale, which is about half the amount of people that watched the Super Bowl, which is pretty incredible. That many people watched it live, like a TV sitcom, essentially. So it just goes to show you the times were different back in 2004 compared to now, because like with all the different options, the internet, the stream services, all that stuff, you know, I'm not sure that would happen. That's just my opinion, but it's also, I think it's been streamed like over two or three billion times. Um, the show is wildly successful and just pretty awesome to see. I think it's just a long time coming. I think they waited a little bit too long. It's been 17 years since the last episode, uh, but it was definitely entertaining. So I'd recommend it. So swig a beer for the cast of Friends. And if you like Friends, you probably enjoyed the hell out of it. And you probably already watched it before you hear this episode. And the other entertainment note I wanted to make was um, an awesome golf match coming up between Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady versus Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers. And Bryson DeChambeau is a very polarizing guy in the game of golf. He's pretty much changing how golf is played. He doesn't care. He doesn't play like the safe plays. He just hits it hard and as far as he possibly can all the time. And Brooks Kepka is one of the better golfers in the world. He's like one of the more popular golfers in the world too. Him and Bryson DeChambeau cannot stand each other. And uh, I think it makes for a great, you know, just great entertainment for the game of golf that can tend to be a little bit dull. They've got a little bit of a rivalry here that, you know, has gone to social media. And I'm sure everybody that's listening to this has seen the interview with Brooks Kepka where he's talking after the um, 
championship. I think it was the PGA championship, I believe. I could be wrong, but the PGA championship this past weekend that Phil Mickelson won. Um, unbelievable, by the way. He's like 50 years old and he won that tournament. So congrats to Lefty. But it was pretty cool. They were talking to Brooks Kepka, and he's like in the middle of his conversation. And Bryson DeChambeau walks behind him. Now, I don't know if he said anything to him, but just the look on Brooks Kepka's face, he just like closes his eyes and like rolls on him. He's like, just fucking, you can just tell he's just like, this fucking guy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. But uh, that's like a nice little rivalry going there. And I saw Brooks Kepka, who saw, you know, Aaron Rodgers is on the same team as Bryson DeChambeau. He tweeted at Aaron Rodgers and said, sorry, bro, or something like that. And then, uh, Bryson DeChambeau came back with the, oh, I'm living rent-free in your head or whatever that stupid comment everybody always says. So I love it for the game of golf. I love the rivalries. Um, you get the entertainment value up. And Bryson DeChambeau clearly doesn't give a shit that nobody likes him. He's just there to win. He's there to make money. He's there to play well. And that's exactly what he's been doing recently. So, you know, more power to him. Swig a beer for Brooks Kepka. I can't wait to watch that uh, that whole event because those matches they have them all mic'd up and everything it's pretty funny to watch those guys play and last time tom brady was getting chirped by charles barkley who was commentating it and um, brady ended up hitting like a 140 yard eagle and he's like chirping barkley on the mic it it was awesome it must see tv very entertaining so swig a beer for that i can't wait to watch it And the last thing I want to say this week is I've changed the day of the release of the podcast to Mondays. I want to make sure everybody kicks their week off on the right foot, has some laughs as you get into your work week, and it's going to be awesome. And this Monday, when this episode drops, it's Memorial Day. So I hope you guys are having a blast with your family and friends, cooking out, crushing some cold cores lights, and listening to the podcast, and remembering the men and women that died for us to have the right to do this in this country and for us to be free. So with that being said, have a hell of a week. Remember. If I don't see you around here, I'll see you around here.